Okay, welcome everybody. Um, very nice to see you. Um, sorry, in a way, uh, this couldn't be in person, which was the original plan, but uh, obviously it means some of you may find it easier uh, to attend online. So um, welcome uh, either way. Um, and just to say that in the chat, you'll find a handout to download if um, you can access that, I hope. Um, and as usual, we'll have the talk, have a five minute break or so, and then have the Q&A. So yeah, let me um, welcome you all to the 13th meeting of the 142nd session of the Aristotelian Society. And it's my great pleasure to introduce the speaker this evening, Michael Della Rocca, who is Andrew Downey Oric Professor of Philosophy at Yale University. Um, Professor De La Rocca has published widely in early modern philosophy and in contemporary metaphysics, including the books Representation and the Mind-Body Problem in Spinoza, 1996, Spinoza, 2008, and the edited collection Oxford Handbook of Spinoza, 2017. His most recent book, The Parmenidean Ascent, uh, 2020, defends a radical form of monism in metaphysics, philosophy of action, epistemology, and philosophy of language. Professor De La Rocca's paper this evening is entitled Moral Criticism and the Metaphysics of Bluff. Please join me in welcoming Professor De La Rocca. Uh, uh, th thank you. Thank you, Bob. And it's, it's great to see so many uh, uh, familiar faces and uh, names and to see some new faces and names, too. I'm so sorry I can't be here in person. Uh, today uh, because of a change in plans, but uh, it's great to be able to meet with you this way. So uh, as Holly mentioned, there's a handout that should be available. They'll help you follow along with the talk. Um, and th this talk today actually grows out of the book, the most recent book of mine that, that Bob mentioned, The Permanente in the Sense, which I, I studiously avoided talking about moral philosophy in the book because I thought it was uh, too big a topic to take on when I was taking on so much else in the book. But this is my first, as it were, foray into moral philosophy on the basis of the kinds of arguments I gave in the book. Um, I'm going to be focused on starting with some Bernard Williams's arguments about internal and external reasons, but I'm going to go well beyond those in certain ways, as, as you will see. So at, at, an, at, a, at a climactic and indeed incendiary moment in his classic essay, Internal and External Reasons from the late 70s, Bernard Williams says that those who um, advance moral criticisms by appealing to so-called external reasons are engaging in bluff, uh, they're engaging in a kind of pretense. This is how he puts it in, in internal and external reasons. Um, he thinks that condemning certain actions uh, as contrary to reason and, and therefore immoral in a certain sense, that kind of condemnation uh, is, is nothing more than a kind of pretense. It's kind of empty. Now, to say that uh, one of our favorite pastimes, namely criticizing other people for being uh, immoral uh, because they're irrational in some sense. Uh, to call that pastime empty, well, that's, as I say in the paper, those are fighting words. And really, these are fighting words about fighting words. And so this is, a, uh, as I said, an incendiary moment in Williams's essay. Now, a lot of people, um, myself included, have found Williams' argument to the extent that there is an argument in, in, in that paper and in later papers by Williams, uh, elusive. Uh, and I think Williams himself found it difficult to state what uh, 
was the argumentative force of, of that he was trying to make in that in that argument. So the the actual and there have been lots of different interpretations of Williams's arguments and lots of different ways for people to try to challenge it. And I'm, I'm sympathetic with all those ways to challenge it because I think his argument is elusive. Uh, one of my colleagues said to me that, that he, he doesn't engage with Williams at all because he finds him very uh, amorphous in, in, in his writing style. And there, there's some truth to that, but there's, I think there's some important core in Williams's arguments that perhaps doesn't come out explicitly in Williams's writings. And he may not even agree with the kind of way I'm going to, to interpret uh, this kind of strategy in his argument. Um, so in, in, in a way, I'm not even offering an interpretation of Williams. I'm trying to give a better basis than Williams explicitly gives for rejecting the appeal to external reasons. We're saying the, ex the appeal to external reasons, and I'll explain what external reasons might mean in a second, that kind of appeal is illegitimate. Um, but I'm going to do so from a perspective that's radically different from previous attempts, I think, um, to, to articulate and perhaps to defend Williams's arguments. Um, and this, this perspective from which I'm going to uh, articulate a kind of defense of Williams's position is uh, by looking at the metaphysical basis of the charge that there is, uh, uh, that, that these kinds of moral criticisms amount to bluff. And I'm going to examine the rationalist bases of, of, this, of these metaphysical views. So I'm going to give a rationalist interpretation of the metaphysical bases on, uh, which lead to Williams's claim that these kinds of moral criticisms are amount to pretense or bluff. And then after I outline this kind of defense of Williams' um, in, um, argument in the first couple of sections of the paper, then I'm going to strengthen this kind of rationalist critique of the, what I call the metaphysics of bluff by putting this critique in a much broader context of analogous and, I, I, it, as I understand them, similarly rationalist critiques of views in very different domains in philosophy. We'll look at a lot of different examples, both from the history of philosophy and perhaps from contemporary philosophy um, that articulate the, a similar kind of strategy a metaphysical strategy for challenging certain views in widely different areas of philosophy. Then I'm going to uh, deploy this kind of rationalist argument in, in, um, uh, in defense, kind of in, in a way, defense of a kind of whim style position. I'm going to deploy this rationalist argument in order to show not only how certain views that invoke external reasons are not legitimate, but also, and I think more importantly, perhaps, to show how certain prevalent Kantian ethical views, um, even though these Kantian ethical views don't invoke external reasons, and we'll see why they don't invoke external reasons, those Kantian views will be subject to a similar criticism to the kind of rationalist uh, infused criticism that I make in the first part of the paper against an external reasons type of view. So this kind of this kind of rationalist argument is going to do a lot of work in the paper, trying to challenge external reasons views, and trying to challenge at least certain kinds of Kantian ethical views. That's that's the general strategy. Now, but the the uh, upshot of my argument uh, may go too far, uh, telling you further than Wims would like it would like to go himself would have liked to go himself, um, because my argument also threatens it. Um, and this is the last section of the paper, my argument also threatens to challenge and to bring down the whole concept of acting for a reason itself, not just acting for 
an external reason. We're not just acting on the basis of Kantian internal reasons, but even challenging the very concept of acting for a reason itself. And this, this goes further than Williams or most other philosophers want to go. And, but this uh, shows the, um, by the, uh, what I think of the natural kinds of arguments I make against external reasons views and Kantian views uh, leads to these drastic consequences, which I'll just sketch in the last section of the paper uh, about acting for a reason in general. And that's, that's one point at which the views in this paper interact uh, with some of the views in my book my recent book. Okay, let's go to section one here on the handout, um, uh, the contrast between internal and external reasons. So I just wanna note that uh, as many people do, I hate the terms internal and external reasons because internal and external, they're used in so many different ways and it's very easy for uh, people to talk past each other. I'm gonna try to explain what I mean, maybe perhaps what Williams means by internal and external reasons. Um, but I wish we didn't have to use these terms, but I'm gonna use it and try to be very clear about how I'm using the terms, okay? So, so let's start by talking about what Wims calls um, the subjective motivational set of an agent. He calls it S, the subjective motivational set. And, um, and this, the, the S, the subjective motivational set includes ordinary desires, like the desire to have ice cream, the desire to go to law school, the desire to um, drink some water. Uh, these, these, could, these could be among uh, things that are in my subjective motivational set. Um, and as Williams points out, uh, the subjective motivational set need not include only egoistic desires, desires for things that are in my self-interest in some sense. I may have desires to help others that, that, and those, those, those could also be included in my subjective motivational set. And it doesn't, the, the subjective motivational set doesn't have to include just desires. It can include uh, commitments, projects, loyalty. So Williams is very, as it were, broad-minded as to what gets included into the subjective motivational set. It doesn't all have to be just desires. Um, it has to be connected somehow to motivations, but doesn't specify necessarily in terms of desires. Now, an internal reason uh, is the consideration that is included in my motivational set, or at least it's derivable from um, uh, things that are explicitly in my motivational set. So it's derivable by practical reason uh, from things, or, or by deliberation. Uh, it's de uh, derivable from things that are already explicitly in my motivational set. So, um, uh, so Williams allows that one can expand one's uh, internal reasons. May, there may be internal reasons that I have not yet discovered, but I can get to those internal reasons through some kind of process of deliberation or perhaps reflection. Now, uh, on this way of saying things, an external reason is a reason for one to act that can apply to one regardless of one's desires, projects, et cetera, uh, that can apply to one independently of what's already in one's motivational set. Okay, so these are reasons for one to act, even if the agent uh, is not at all antecedently motivated to act on those reasons. And even if the reasons are not, uh, these external reasons are not derivable uh, by practical reasoning from one's uh, elements that are already in one's motivational set, one's existing motivations. Um, if the agent, um, uh, so on the external reasons view, if the agent does not act on things that um, they have external reasons to do. If the agent does not act on their external reasons, 
then the agent is acting is being in some sense irrational, being contrary to things that the agent has reason to do. That would that would be the idea. Um, um, the agent may not yet be motivated by those reasons, and um, and those external reasons may not be derivable from things that are in the agent's current motivational set. Um, but the, the, there are reasons nonetheless for the agent, and the agent, who, if if they go against those reasons, are acting irrationally in some sense. That's that's the brunt of this kind of moral criticisms. So for the external reasons, then, uh, for the theorists of external reasons, um, there's a kind of bifurcation amongst our reasons. There are internal reasons which are, in effect, a function of our ordinary desires or commitments or things that we are explicitly motivated by. Um, th th so there are the internal reasons. And then there's a, a completely different kind of reasons, external reasons, which are not derivable from my motivational set in the way that my uh, internal reasons are derivable from, from my motivational set. So the external reasons which are independent of, or in, at least in some cases, not derivable from my motivational set. Those are the external reasons, and there are different kind of reasons. So for the external reasons theorists, reasons are not everywhere the same. There are internal reasons, which are all a function of my existing motivations and desires, et cetera. And there are external reasons which are independent of my existing motivations, desires, or whatever. For the internal reasons theorist, um, reasons are basically everywhere the same. They're all internal in the sense. They're all derivable from my motivational set, or derivable from elements in my motivational set. So that's uh, an important contrast be between uh, internal reasons theorists, as I'm understanding them, and external reasons theorists. For the internal reasons theorists, reasons are everywhere the same. For the external reasons theorists, there's a bifurcation among uh, our reasons. Now, a crucial feature of external reasons is that in, in some way they can take precedence over or override or have some authority over our ordinary internal reasons. So external reasons uh, in performing the uh, in providing the basis for moral criticism, they, they take some kind of precedence. They, they provide the basis for this kind of moral criticism. That, so that's the kind of authority that external reasons have. Now, it doesn't mean they always uh, have this authority, but they have some kind of, uh, external reasons have some kind of, um, provide some kind of opportunity to criticize the agent who goes against those, more, uh, against those reasons. Um, so that's, that's one important feature. Uh, of external reasons that they have this kind of authority or precedence. Um, and then it's important to note that I think there are two points of agreement in the debate in general here. And this is somewhat common ground between external reasons theorists and internal reasons theorists. One is that internal reasons um, on which they, they, these are reasons on which we can sometimes act. We do sometimes act on internal reasons. I have a desire to have some ice cream and I act on that desire when I get ice cream or something like that. Uh, or to use an example I'll use later in the talk, um, I have this crazy desire for tater tots. I don't know if you know what tater tots are. These like, they're like these, I don't know, the little French fry things, but they're, I, can't, I find them irresistible. Okay, um, I have that. Um, so that's an ordinary desire, ordinary internal reason. And I sometimes act on those desires for ice cream or whatever. Um, so that's one point of agreement. And I think external reasons and internal reasons seriously agree that um, sometimes we do act on our internal reasons, on our ordinary desires. Um, and our internal reasons are in some way a function of our ordinary desires. 
The second point of agreement is that internal reasons, um, sometimes some internal reasons, as it were, win out over other internal reasons. So my desire for ice cream may, can, can prevail over my desire for tater tots or whatever, and I act on the desire for ice cream in, in a given case, and that on the desire for tater tots. So um, that, that's um, uh, another feature that uh, is common ground, I think, in the debate that sometimes some ordinary internal reasons can win out over other internal reasons. And in any case, um, we often do act we act on our ordinary internal reasons. So one way to, to, to phrase the debate is to say that given that ordinary desires or reasons and, and that we sometimes act on, is there a good basis for saying that there are also considerations of a different kind, the external reasons that provide a, a basis, that, that, that provide a reason uh, for acting and have some kind of precedence over internal reasons. So given that there are internal reasons with these features, they um, uh, are things we can sometimes act on and are things that can sometimes win out over other internal reasons. Given that internal reasons have these features, is there a reason for thinking that there's another kind of consideration an external reason that can have some kind of authority over, some kind of rational authority over internal reasons? That's, that's the, the debate for this part of the paper. And so now we get to the section on, called Williams' arguments. So, and Williams says, no, there cannot be uh, external reasons. Um, for Williams, there is nothing over and above the fray of our passions and ordinary desires that can save us from these um, ordinary passions and desires that, that, that we can be saved uh, from those things uh, by appealing to something else that can morally adjudicate uh, uh, these passions and and uh, and have some kind of precedence over these passions. Um, so, for uh, on the Wham style view, um, we have to fight a passion with a passion. Um, there's no, there's nothing coming from outside the realm of our passions or ordinary desires or ordinary internal reasons that can adjudicate among our ordinary internal reasons. Right? It's, we're, we're left at the mercy of our in ordinary internal reasons. We're left at the mercy of our of our ordinary passions. This is why Williams calls his view a subhuman view. It's a kind of human view, and I, th I think that's that's basically right. I think Williams does have a kind of human view, and he thinks that there cannot be any kinds of reasons other than ordinary desires, passions, or, uh, or what he calls ordinary internal reasons. But what's his argument for saying that there are no external reasons? That's, that's the key thing here. And um, so I've, on the handout, I've outlined uh, a kind of a reconstruction of his argument. Um, he doesn't quite put it this way, but uh, again, I'm not concerned with interpreting Williams. And um, so we'll just look at, look at this as a kind of argument for uh, denying for their external reasons. So the first claim, this is the crucial claim. One, if something is a reason to act in a certain way, then the agent is motivated to act in that way, or the agent can, through a process of rational deliberation based on their existing motivations, arrive at a motivation to act in that way. Um, in other words, a reason as a reason must engage with one's existing motivations in order to be a reason. Reasons must have some kind of connection with existing motivations. They must have some kind of purchase on our existing motivations in order for a reason to be a reason. That's the first claim. We'll talk about that claim in detail in a moment. The second claim of the argument is that if, if a reason is external, that is if it's independent of the agent's motivational set, S, 
then that reason does not or cannot or need not, I could say, I could say also, it need not engage with the agent's existing motivations. The, in other words, the, the, the external reasons are independent of the agent's motivational set. Um, and this is in effect a partial definition, at least a partial definition of what an external reason is. They're independent of uh, what's in the agent's motivational set. From those first two claims, it follows that if something is a reason for an agent to act, then it cannot be an external reason. Okay, that's, uh, that's the rejection of external reasons in claim number three. Um, so in other words, if anything is gonna, is gonna count as a reason for one to act, then, then that consideration is thereby already an internal reason. Um, if there's gonna be any alleged external reasons must as it were turn into an internal reason in order to qualify as a reason. So um, this is um, to get within the sphere of reasons, as it were, uh, something must become internal in order to qualify as a reason. And I call this uh, a feature, this is the imperialism of internal reasons. Um, the internality of reasons spreads, as it were, to encompass the entire space of reasons. Uh, there, are, there can be no reasons that are external because in order for something to get into the, the domain of reasons, it must, it must be or become internal. It must engage with our existing motivations. So this is the sweeping expansion, as it were, of internality. Uh, and this kind of expansion of internality is what I'm calling the imperialism of internal reasons. To, to appeal to external reasons then, is to appeal to something incoherent, is to appeal to something that's a reason, but it's independent of my existing motivations. And that given, especially claim number one, is going to be incoherent. Um, so, um, and to appeal then to external reasons on this view would be just to appeal to something incoherent. And that's really the basis of the charge of bluff. Uh, people are just pretending that there's a, a, a real external reason here. The, the very notion of, um, external reason is, is incoherent. And this is a kind of, um, as it were, a conceptual skepticism about external reasons. The very concept of external reasons is incoherent. We can't, uh, as it were, make sense of it on, on this style of argument. Again, which may or may not be Williams's argument, but this is, this is my way of re reconstructing at least the way that um, uh, the argument appears. Um, um, okay, so that's, uh, Williams's argument uh, as, as I'm more or less interpreting it. But now I want to defend that argument, okay? This is now section three of the paper. I want to defend this argument on a metaphysical basis and indeed on a rationalist basis, okay? Um, and this is not um, uh, necessarily, again, any kind of basis on which Williams is relying on in, in his argument. So um, now just looking at the argument one, two, and three, Two is a matter of definition, basically. So that's, uh, we can allow that. Um, and so the real, the crucial point is claim number one in the argument. Uh, and I want to offer reasons in a rationalist spirit for, on behalf of claim number one, okay? Um, and uh, one way to start this uh, rationalist uh, defense of claim number one is, to know first that external reasons are distinct from internal reasons in this sense. This is a bifurcation as I noted earlier. Internal reasons are, are already included in or are derivable from 
or motivational set, S, and external reasons by definition are not or need not be derivable, derivable from our motivational set. So external reasons as we're float free or can float free of our motivational set. Now, despite this disparity, the external reasons theorist holds that external reasons stand in a relation of some kind of authority or precedence over internal reasons. Now, I want to argue that this relation of authority or precedence is unintelligible. Um, and that, the, this and that this unintelligibility grounds the truth of claim number one. And I think that this, this uh, authority or precedence is unintelligible precisely because of the disparity between the radically different uh, natures, as it were, or characters of external reasons and internal reasons. So at this point, the key question is this, for me, in virtue of what, would this relation of authority that external reasons purportedly enjoy over internal reasons obtain? And for me, the key answer to this question is nothing. There's nothing in virtue of which this relation of authority obtains. Because of their disparate character, we cannot explain or understand or say what it is in virtue of which um, external reasons allegedly stand in this relation of authority to or over internal reasons. Now, contrast this uh, unintelligibility between external and internal reasons, contrast this um, um, with the relation between two internal reasons. It seems, given the points of agreement earlier, that all sides agree or can agree that internal reasons can stand in relations of winning out over or losing out to other internal reasons. This relation, at least at this point, seems to be perfectly intelligible. It's just the, the intelligibility of that is not challenged. I'm going to challenge that in the last section of this paper, but, but forget I said that. We'll get, come back to it later. This is the point of agreement that this kind of winning out relation among some internal reasons over others is perfectly intelligible, it is thought. Given that point, uh, we can ask the further question, can we similarly understand how an external reason, for example, an external reason to help one's neighbor um, can have authority over, can dominate an internal reasons, such as my internal reasons to have tater tots or ice cream or whatever. Um, and if we try to explain this dominance of the external reason to help one's neighbor uh, by appealing uh, to some kind of desire that we have, a desire to help our neighbor uh, that is greater than our desire for ice cream or tater tots or whatever, then we turn this purported external reason, a reason to help one's neighbor into an internal reason um, because we're tying it then to our motivational set, tying it to our ordinary desires. And that would be to, uh, to undermine its character as an alleged external reason. This would be an instance of the, uh, what I was calling the imperialism of internal reasons. We've turned an external reason into an ex internal reason by, by explaining its authority in terms of a desire to help one's neighbor, et cetera. I think that given the disparity between internal and external reasons, um, um, we cannot see how the consideration external to one's motivational set, the consideration in favor of helping one's neighbor has authority over one's internal reasons. We can't see that any more then we can see how, how the rival consideration, um, let's say equally external consideration of, of harming one's neighbor um, 
has authority over one's internal reasons. Um, we can't say what it is in virtue of which the external reason to help one's neighbor is a re this is legitimately a reason. Uh, we, can't, we can't explain why this, this kind of authority obtains. Um, so the relation of authority here is left unexplained. It's, it's a mystery. It, it's left unintelligible. Um, and so there, there's, uh, we, we can't understand this relation of authority. Um, by contrast, we can, it seems, understand the relation whereby one internal reason wins out over another. That seems perfectly intelligible, it seems. But the relation whereby the external reason has authority over the internal reason, that's left, it's interesting, but it's left unexplained. Um, it's left a mystery. Um, now, at this point, uh, so it seems to be a natural. It seems to be natural to want to explain this relation of authority, to want to say what this relation of authority consists in. And my my point here basically is that the uh, we, we're unable to say the, the external reasons theory is, is unable to say what this relation of authority consists in. Now, I think that appealing to um, this authority, saying that this authority is just a primitive fact. Um, that really won't do in this context because it just is to play into the hands of Williams's charge of bluff. Um, to say that um, um, there's this relation of authority here and there's no explanation for it, uh, just because there is a relation of authority here, that's, that's all right, but it seems to be uh, it, um, just inviting uh, uh, someone who uh, wants to criticize external research by saying, look, that's just an appeal it's an empty appeal. You're saying that there's something that you can't explain. Uh, this is really just the, a version of the kinds of thing that, that Williams is criticizing when he appeals to bluff. I think also appealing to intuitions here doesn't help either. To say we have an intuition, I don't know if anyone has this intuition. Some people invoke this kind of intuition. Um, um, but to, to say that there's an intuition that um, certain kinds of uh, considerations independent of our motivational set or reasons, that, that doesn't really do any real work in explaining what this authority consists in. To, um, to dig in one's heels, as it were, and to appeal to intuition here, as we have an intuition that there's this authority that these external reasons have, um, that's not really doing, going any distance towards uh, answering the kind of explanatory question, kind of natural explanatory question, what is it in virtue of which this authority relation obtains? So um, there's a natural demand for an explanation for uh, uh, an account of how it is that these considerations have authority. And that's not being, that demand for explanation is not being met uh, on, this, uh, on this view. So that's, that's the basic strategy of the argument here. And it's a distinctively rationalist argument, I want to say, because I'm, appealing to um, explanatory considerations that mass in the explanatory question, what is it in virtue of which this relation of, of authority obtains? If it is legitimate, what is it in virtue of which it obtains? Um, but there is no explanation for what it is in virtue of which uh, that explanation, that, that relation of authority obtains. And so that's a reason for rejecting uh, external reasons because there's no way to explain the kind of relation of authority that they allegedly have. Um, so, um, so what the external reasons theorist is doing basically is positing relations that are unintelligible, that there's no metaphysical basis for. Um, and uh, that's uh, a rationalist basis for rejecting the claim that there are external reasons, okay? So external reasons are, as I say, um, something like um, 
a reason that comes out of nowhere, a ratio ex machina, as it were, a reason that comes out of nowhere. Um, and we can't understand how this thing that comes out of nowhere enjoys this kind of authority relation that it, it allegedly enjoys over ordinary internal reasons. Now, I want to uh, note that um, one can make this kind of criticism, as I've just made, without being committed to a full-blown principle of sufficient reason. Um, I love the principle of sufficient reason. It's problematic and everything, but I, I, I love it. Um, uh, but one can make this kind of argument without being committed to the general claim that facts in general, all facts have explanations. All that this argument insists on, and it's, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a natural demand to make, is that um, a certain kind of fact, namely an alleged fact that there's this authority relation that uh, external reasons have over internal reasons, that kind of fact, uh, if it is to be legitimate, needs to have an explanation. And the strategy of the argument is that it doesn't have an explanation, and so the, um, the alleged authority relation is illegitimate. Um, so you, you don't have to be committed to a full-blown PSR. You just need to accept the explanatory demand in this particular case about what is it in virtue of which the relation of authority obtains. Um, um, and, uh, but th this is kind of a, still a rationalist kind of argument because the demand for this kind of explanation in this particular case is a kind of rationalist demand, even if it doesn't presuppose the full-blown PSR. Now, it's kind of surprising because I'm saying that Williams's arguments can um, perhaps best be defended by appealing to this kind of rationalist consideration. That's interesting because, you know, it's interesting probably because Williams characterizes the position, I think, rightly as a human kind of, it's a subhuman position, he says. Um, but that's, that's okay. I mean, if, you might think that Hume or human position is not a rationalist position. And in a way that's true, um, but in a way also I think that um, um, you can see rationalism as characterized by a commitment to some kind of explanatory demand along the lines of the PSR, that's perfectly consistent at least with an empiricist view. And empiricists can um, quite consistently allow for uh, these kinds of explanatory considerations and indeed a full-blown PSR um, so I think that's not necessarily, it's not a problem to have a view that be, can be kind of empiricist or Humean in the sense that Williams invokes, and also uh, be in a sense, a view best defended by appeal to rationalist considerations. Um, again, Williams might not welcome being tarred with the brush of rationalism, but uh, I think there's enough uh, uh, in his position to see it as, as a kind of position that can be best defended by appeal to rationalist considerations. So, uh, and th this is a kind of strategy I have. I mean, so Wayne's may in some sense be a closet rationalist, or at least his views may be more um, perspicuously defended by appeal to rationalism than he thought, but so there's a kind of uh, uh, convergence between Williams's views and rationalism. And this is actually in a way par for the course for me, uh, because I one of my endeavors in philosophy is, is to find hidden, as it were, rationalist motivations in all strands of philosophy. Uh, perhaps, um, for me, Quine counts as a kind of rationalist. We can talk about that. Um, Hume, uh, in a way, is, is a real soft spot for rationalism uh, in other areas of philosophy besides the ones I'm talking about today. Um, and I think Williams does too. Williams may not agree with this, but that's okay. Um, but I think this is the kind of, this kind of rationalist basis is the best kind of way to defend um, 
a Williams-style rejection of external reasons. Now, to try to, let's move on to section four, um, to try to bring out the power of this kind of argument um, and to further support this kind of argument, um, I would like to place my critique of the notion of external reasons in the context, a, a very broad context of other influential and seemingly um, rationalist views and similarly rationalist views in a number of different areas of philosophy. I won't go into detail here because there, there are several examples I'll, I'll at least mention, but I think this is the kind of pattern that's at work throughout other areas of philosophy where certain views are rejected um, because they involve bifurcations that are similar to the bifurcation between internal and external reasons, and those views are rejected on rationalist grounds, is actually striking and, and can help lend further support to this kind of argument. So the first example, and the one that I'll say the most about, is uh, uh, the rejection of Cartesian mind-body interaction. So uh, you know, in Descartes' view, this is kind of a standard interpretation of Descartes, um, uh, the mind and the body interact. The mind is not at all physical, not at all extended. It's a purely thinking thing, yet it nonetheless interacts with the body and with other bodies uh, besides one's own body, uh, interacts with the body. And the body is, is not at all a thinking thing. It's, it's, it's a purely extended or physical thing uh, on uh, Descartes' terms. Now, Descartes was criticized right away for this um, view. Princess Elizabeth very famously raised this objection in, in some letters in 1643, at least to one aspect of this kind of mind-body interaction between different disparate kinds of things. Um, and she doesn't understand how that can be possible. Uh, how that mind-body interaction could be possible. Similar criticisms came uh, around the same time. Gassendi raised this kind of question. He, he invoked the disparity between mind and body as precluding interaction of mind and body. And Conway did the same thing, uh, importantly. And Spinoza in the ethics does the same kind of thing. So it's a, it's a, it's a theme in lots of criticisms of, um, um, of early criticisms of Descartes. Um, and all these views are saying, all these criticisms are saying that there's the, the mind and the body on the Cartesian view have too little in common in order to stand this kind of causal relation of causation between them. That's, that's the view. Actually, Williams himself uh, gets in on the act here and he, he raises this kind of criticism of Descartes as well. And Williams is his book on Descartes. Um, and he says, you know, it's often said and, and he's right about that. It was often said in Descartes' time and in our own time too, it is often said that there was something deeply mysterious about the interaction uh, which Descartes' theory required of two items totally disparate um, with totally disparate natures, the immaterial soul and the gland or any other part of the extended body. So Williams sees the, the force of this kind of criticism of Descartes. So one aspect of Princess Elizabeth's or Williams's or others uh, worry about Descartes here is that given the disparate natures of mind and body, there's no way to explain how they interact or what it is in virtue of which they interact. In this light, these kinds of classical and contemporary criticisms of, of the Cartesian picture um, with their demands for an explanation, no, uh, 
demand to explain how it is that these, these, these disparate things can interact. So these kinds of criticisms then can be seen as rationalist-inspired challenges to Descartes' views on, on mind-body and mind-body interaction. And this is ironic in a way because Descartes is often regarded as a rationalist, um, and there's some basis for saying that. But I think in this respect of Descartes' philosophy, he's actually an anti-rationalist. He's actually appealing to things that are inexplicable or unintelligible. Um, and he, he admits as much, Descartes admits as much, and he sort of embraces that. He says uh, to Gassendi, indirectly to Gassendi, he said that these kinds of criticisms depend on something that I totally reject, Descartes says. Uh, it depends on the view, the criticisms of, of Descartes depend on the view that there cannot be interaction between things of disparate natures. And Descartes says, I just reject that principle. There can perfectly well be interaction between things of, of disparate natures. And, and he goes on to say, this is in the sixth meditation, it's actually, these cause relations are sort of arbitrary. There's no reason why these cause relations are, are in place, uh, except for the fact that God, as it were, arbitrarily institute these causal relations because God's looking out for the well-being of the mind-body union. Uh, there's much more to be said about that, but there's nothing intrinsic to the mind or intrinsic to the body that dictates that they stand in these causal relations. God has to come in. This is, this is the case of a deus ex machina. God has to come in and institute these causal relations. So there, is, there are these causal relations for Descartes, but they're just totally arbitrary uh, as far as the perspective of the, of the natures of the mind and the body are concerned. Um, and this is really the um, Descartes just uh, agreeing that there's some kind of arbitrariness or unintelligibility about the causal relation here it has to be instituted by God, but that doesn't stop Descartes from affirming it. Um, in, my, in my lecture course on early modern philosophy, I call this Descartes' darkest hour, okay? Um, and uh, so anyway, this, this, is, this is the brunt of the kind of criticism that uh, Princess Elizabeth, Conway, and others are making of Descartes. Um, and it's really, I think, a rationalist-inspired criticism of Descartes, a criticism on rationalist grounds of Descartes. There's nothing in virtue of which this alleged causal relation between mind and body obtains. Um, and I think this argument concerning um, uh, mind-body interaction and the argument concerning the relation between external reasons and internal reasons, which are disparate in nature, as, for the reasons I said before, um, these arguments are appealing to the same kind of unease concerning unintelligible relations between uh, things of different kinds. Um, and again, what I'm saying is that this kind of uh, parallel between the uh, objections to mind-body interaction in Descartes and the objections to external reasons that I was uh, making earlier in this paper, this kind of parallel between them uh, illuminates the, the argument against external reason and, and also further supports the argument for external reasons, because to the extent to which one is drawn to these arguments against Descartes, as very many of us philosophers have been drawn to, uh, to that extent, that adds, I think, support to uh, the kind of argument against external reasons that I was uh, articulating uh, in previous sections of this paper. Now, um, the... Um, uh, there are other kinds of analogies that I won't have time to go into here between intern, uh, between representational and non-representational mental states, um, uh, and criticism of that distinction, criticism of the distinction between Arist Aristotelian form and matter distinction. We can talk about that. Uh, criticism of Frege's distinction between concept and object, or for that matter, Frege's distinction between the force and the contents of, of thoughts or propositions. Um, 
there are similar kinds of interaction between things of different kinds um, there, and which have been and can be criticized on rationalist grounds for these kinds of reasons. These are all parallel cases, I think. Now, um, let me move on to section five, uh, uh, talking about the, um, uh, how, how this kind of argument can appeal, apply to uh, Kantian uh, views. Um, so a Kantian views, um, and, and Korsgaard is really good at pointing this out, a Kantian view is not committed to external reasons. So um, uh, because the kinds of uh, Kantian reasons that are being appealed to, uh, reasons having to do with our duty, um, are internal reasons. There could be kinds of reasons that are motivating reasons that are available to everyone, every agent from from um, already part of their uh, agent's motivational set. Um, so for proponents of Kantian internal reasons, moral criticism is not based on a failure to act on external reasons, but a failure to uh, act on reasons that are internal because our rational nature provides us all with the capacity to be motivated to act morally. Um, and as, there's a quote on the handout where Korsgaard basically says that if one accepts this internalist requirement, um, then this capacity to be motivated by consideration stemming from pure practical reason, that capacity belongs to the subjective motivational set of every rational being, and those rational considerations are thus internal. Um, and Williams concedes that uh, the Kantian view, which he didn't quite articulate well, at least in the initial paper, um, is a limiting case of an internalist view, right? So the Kantian view, as Williams comes to agree, is not committed to external reasons. Then uh, as far as Williams's initial argument as it was presented goes, he, he loses his argument against the, Kant, against the Kantian view. Um, um, so then how can we argue against the Kantian view? Um, so I think that um, uh, one way to do this is just to appeal to the kind, a version of the kind of argument I gave against external reasons, this kind of rationalist-based argument. Um, uh, and, and this begins by noting that for the Kantian view, there are, although there are no external reasons, there are two radically different kinds of internal reasons. Um, uh, reasons, first reasons that are a matter of inclination or one's subjective or personal point of view versus reasons that are dictates of inclination um, um, uh, versus reasons that, are, uh, reasons that are dictates of reason itself and are a matter of objective or impersonal perspective. Um, um, so there will be these uh, reasons of two very different kinds. And crucially, Kantian internal reasons on the Kantian view and there are many different kinds of Kantian view, but these kinds of reasons, the internal reasons stemming from the nature of reason itself would have some kind of authority over ordinary desires, ordinary internal reasons. So for the Kantian, reasons are not everywhere the same. Um, and so there's a disparity between uh, Kantian internal reasons and ordinary internal reasons like the desire for ice cream. Um, and uh, now there's a problem with this view, again, analogous to the previous problem, how or in virtue of what do Kantian internal reasons stand in this relation of authority over ordinary internal reasons? And as with external reasons, it's not enough merely to state or to claim or to invoke an intuition that Kantian internal reasons and ordinary internal reasons stand in this relation. There's an explanatory demand. We want to know what it is in virtue of which these Kantian internal reasons are genuinely reasons. Um, 
And um, I, my contention is that the Kantian doesn't actually provide an explanation of what it is in virtue of which um, uh, the uh, Kantian internal reasons or legitimately reasons. So given the disparity between ordinary internal reasons and Kantian internal reasons, um, there's a kind of emptiness, this kind of incoherence in the appeal to these radically different kinds of reasons, because you cannot understand the authority of these radically uh, different kinds of reasons have over ordinary internal reasons. So again, um, uh, given this concern, uh, in order for a reason to legitimately be a reason, it must be an ordinary internal reason. It must um, um, have the motivational efficacy that ordinary internal reasons have. Um, so in a way that uh, all reasons then become like ordinary internal reasons and not uh, uh, there's no room for separate content internal reasons. Um, that's that's a general way in which my earlier argument can apply to Kantian views as well. And I think that's a, it's an important implication of my view. Let me just, in, in the last couple of minutes, let me just um, mention uh, in section six here, uh, a kind of radicalization of this kind of argument. And so this, this I'm laying myself open to criticism here because I'm, I'm gonna say that there's an implication of my, the arguments that I've just given against Kantian internal reasons and against external reasons. An implication of that argument leads to the rejection of the notion of reasons for action in general. Um, and so this is gonna be a troubling consequence in my view, which I'm going to embrace as is my, my fashion. Um, so, um, so, you know, I've challenged the extraordinary, I've challenged the appeal to external reasons. I've challenged the appeal to Kantian internal reasons by, in both cases by showing that, that it's unintelligible for us to act on those reasons. But now we have to ask, is it intelligible for us uh, to act even on ordinary internal reasons? Um, or uh, in virtue of what does one ordinary desire win out over another desire? Um, and, um, and I wanna say that there's nothing that we can say that could illuminate what it is in virtue of which ordinary internal reasons and actions stand in the relations that they do. We think that uh, my desire for ice cream is a reason of some kind for us, for me to eat ice cream, but we can't understand that relation of, of, be, of being a reason for. Um, and I want to explain that uh, now just very briefly here. Um, when we seek to explain the relation between an ordinary internal reason and an action, we can characterize that action whose relation to an ordinary internal reason is to be explained either in terms that are independent of, of its relation to ordinary internal reasons or in terms of its relation to the ordinary internal reason in question. Um, now, the former way of proceeding is roughly uh, the view uh, in the causal theory of action uh, from Davidson and, and his followers. Um, uh, what Davidson and his followers basically tried to do is to um, explain an action as a bodily movement, which can be characterized as, as it were in terms that are neutral, independent of the notion of reason, and saying that that bodily movement is, is a physical event, stands in a causal relation to an action. Um, a problem for this, uh, uh, for this kind of view uh, uh, sends it a causal relation to reason. The problem for this kind of view is that it's the deviant causal chain problem. There's no way to spell out the kind of causal relation that must obtain between the reason and the bodily movement when it's a causal relation. What kind of causal relation can't be specified without appealing to the notion of action itself and appealing to the notion of reason itself? This is the problem of deviant causal chains, which has been uh, the major problem perhaps for the causal theory of action. So the ordinary internal reason and the bodily movement or mere event characterized in, characterized in terms that do not presuppose that ordinary internal reason, 
are too disparate for us to intelligibly see how they uh, can be related in the way um, that is needed in order for the ordinary internal reason to be the reason on which the agent acts. The other way of, another way of um, proceeding in the philosophy of action is, um, is the way that comes from, is the non-causal theory of action, which is uh, uh, expressed by Anscombe's users, which I think are great in a lot of ways, and by lots of people who have followed in Anscombe's footsteps. Um, and so what she says, look, we, we shouldn't try to characterize the action as a bodily movement in terms that are independent of the notion of reasons uh, themselves. Um, rather, we should characterize the action as an action done for a certain reason. But if we do that, then we haven't really explained what it is in virtue of which uh, the action is done for a reason. If, we, if, the, if the action is characterized just as the action that's done for a reason, then we've not gone any distance to explaining that notion of what it is to act for a reason. Um, at least on the Davidsonian view, that was an attempt to explain what it is for this action to be done for a reason by characterizing the action in neutral terms, appealing to a notion of causation. They just got into a problem with the deviant causal chain problem in the, in the Davidsonian case. In the Anscombian case, they, they, they start right with the notion of action done for a reason. So that, that precludes them from really being able to offer an illuminating explanation of what it is to be, uh, for an action to be done for a reason. So um, the problem is that there's kind of an unintelligible relation between the action and the reason when the action is done for a reason. And we can't specify that relation between reason and action in any kind of illuminating terms. Either it's gonna be uh, uh, appeal to kind of uh, uh, notions that presuppose the notion of reason itself with a deviant causal chain problem, or you're gonna build in the notion of reason into the notion of action itself. And in a way, in both cases, you're failing to make progress on the explanatory question. So, um, so really this kind of problem with uh, interaction between disparate kinds of things actually challenges the notion of action done for a reason in general. It doesn't just challenge the notion of external reasons, or it doesn't just challenge the notion of content internal reasons. It challenges the notion of reasons for action in general. And one perhaps solution, I'm just gonna gesture at this um, uh, in light of these problems um, is to um, say, um, that there um, is a distinction between reason and action um, um, or, or in all those views that, that, that we've gotten to problems with the, the external reasons case, the Kantian case and the ordinary case of reasons for action, all those views get into problems um, by seeking to explain and being unable to explain relations between reasons and action or between one reason and another reason. And so, um, uh, one way to avoid these problems um, is to move to, to give up the assumption that there's a distinction between reason and action. Perhaps there's, there's and this is like the biggest imperialist move of the paper, um, we have to elide not only the distinction between uh, external reasons and internal reasons, and not only the distinction between Kantian internal reasons and ordinary internal reasons, but we also have to elide, get rid of the distinction between reasons and actions themselves. And this might view might lead to a general kind of monism of action of a very radical time. And these will be, uh, this would be a kind of ins further incendiary thoughts uh, um, that I've gotten to on the basis of trying to defend Williams's own incendiary thoughts and trying to eliminate external reasons. So that's, that, on that last point, is I, I 
uh, come to a kind of uh, convergence with some views in my book, but that's the kind of a radical note on which I want to end for now. Thank you. <laughs>